welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And we are here with a returning guest today. His name is Ross Wolf. He is a writer and historian. How you doing, Ross? Pretty good. Great to be back. Excellent. So uh, I figure we could start with uh, a little bit of news, shall we say? A little bit of electoral news? Before we go down that primrose path of dalliance, uh, I would like to say to all the listeners out there, thank you so much for uh, bearing with me and us. Uh, I have taken, as you probably noticed, a good amount of time off from the podcast, taking care of some personal stuff. Um, I'm back now. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you so much to everybody out there for the kind words of uh, love and solidarity that you sent. And um, thanks again for listening. Uh, and I'm really, really looking forward to continuing this podcast. Um, and, you know, on a, in, a greater, in a better space, in a better space moving forward. So thanks again, everybody. And it's great to be back. So what were you saying? Yeah, you guys are the best. Um so, yeah, a little bit of Bernie news this week. I know we try not to talk too much about electoral politics on this show, not because we hate them, but because everybody else is already doing that. And we hope to fill a slightly different niche on the left of the political spectrum. But um, there was some news. There was some Bernie news. I guess it's probably going to be old by the time this comes out. But there was a heart attack, gack, 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 as they say. Was it, do you actually have a heart attack? He had an uh, infarction. Yeah, he had a cardiac infarction. He got a stent. Like, no big deal. If anything, he's like a fucking cyborg now. He's fucking unstoppable. Um, I don't want the Bernie people to get mad if we called an infarction a heart attack. You know, sometimes people get very sensitive about this stuff. But um, in, the, in the aftermath of that, I heard a lot of, uh, I don't know, how, how do you call them? Just like real all-in Bernie stands saying things like, "Ugh, don't even feed into that narrative. Don't even talk. Don't even give it air. Like what narrative? The narrative that he's in the hospital right now and he's 78 years old and he had some shit wrong with his heart. Like, all right. And it kind of got me thinking and wondering, like, what kind of left movement, what kind of left opposition these folks are going to be if Bernie does win office? Because, you know, we got to be able to criticize the president. And at some point in time, uh, it becomes counter to our goals to be just like, yay, raw, 100%, as much as we all like Bernie and want him to win. Yeah, and, and uh, by the same token, too, what does it say about the broader left that uh, so much of people's aspirations are tied up in this one man in this campaign? Um, you know, obviously, it's super important. And obviously, um, you know, in terms of, socialism broadly uh he is definitely activating a lot of people right now but um your movement is going to be certainly um fragile if you have a 70 or 8 year old man with no successors out there as of yet and um without really the kind of uh, balance of you know class forces and class power that would be necessary even to create socialism so online and elsewhere I, I saw and heard a lot of people almost like bargaining with themselves you know when somebody has like terminal cancer or something like that talking like oh it's gonna be okay I'm sure Bernie will be fine da -da 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 -da. I'm not saying he isn't right but it's it goes to show that like you know so much of this movement is predicated on this man doing what this man does yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I get it, right? Because he really is the best candidate for president right now. 
and we all want him to win for a variety of reasons. Um, but like, if you're going to be all not me us, which is literally his slogan, then there needs to be more than just this one guy and just this one campaign, even at this crucial juncture when he's running for president. Like I get it. Like we can have a public in a private position, right? Like I'm not going to be out there every day on the majority report delivering my left critiques of Bernie. Cause they're just not that salient to the election right now. But at the same time, like the left needs to be thinking in terms of 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even for Bernie to get anything done, as everyone acknowledges, this is one thing we like about him. It's going to take a huge grassroots working class movement to keep the pressure on from the outside because, you know, his own party, mo- much of his own party is arrayed against him, not to mention the Republicans who are just basically an obstructionist death cult at this point in time. So, uh, I don't know. What, what do you make of all this, Ross? Well... I'm all, I'm of the mind that personally, you know, electoral politics are not really uh, what I'm interested in terms of uh, socialism or a class movement uh, to overthrow capitalism. But one thing that I hear sometimes from those who are into that is one has to withhold his or her criticism of Bernie until they're in office when they can actually do something and then criticize them from the left. I think that perhaps as there is a more general public interest in socialism, uh, rediscovering the socialist tradition, I think that it's important to raise uh, along the line, every step of the way, critiques from the left of the sort of limitations and the, the limited horizons of social democracy and social democracy in one country. Yeah, this is a really important distinction for everybody to make, too. When we talk about socialism, it's a very broad term, and oftentimes it's uh, it's thrown around really willy-nilly. Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist, but if you look down the line uh, of his actual policies, what he believes in, what he's fighting for, what he would like to see, they're classic social democratic policies. Mm -hmm. So don't get it twisted, right? You know, Bernie Sanders, he's not like a fake socialist. He's part of this longer, broader socialist tradition that seeks to take the state apparatus, to take it over, right? Mm-hmm. And, to, and to put sort of like working class uh, forward positions out there and policies in place that are going to help labor against capital, supposedly, in one particular country. You know, he does have some foreign policy credentials for sure, right? But his task and the task of all the people that are fighting for him is to take over the U.S. state, take over the Democratic Party and move it to the left. Yeah, I mean, the thing that bothers me about that is not that Bernie is out there calling himself a socialist because he is a bourgeois politician. He is doing a lot for the socialist brand. I think the thing that bothers me more is the linguistic slippage that occurs when people who are on the who say they're on the anti-capitalist left, people who brand themselves as socialists and as Marxists um, start to substitute this Bernie Sanders social democracy for socialism and spread that through, um, you know, political ed projects, through publications. I'm not going to name any names and spread the idea that like this is the horizon that the Marxist anti-capitalist left should be shooting for and anyone who wants to speak or think beyond that horizon is some kind of crazy ultra-left wrecker. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so there was a piece uh, about about a year ago, actually, um, by Angela Nagel, who... Angela? Or Angela Nagel? Uh, I, I, I like to combine her with Angela Merkel in my mind, so that's really good. I th- all right. think that really pissed her off. <laughs> please, please continue. I'll, I think I'll start from the top with that one. <laughs> so there was a piece about a year ago now um, by Angela Nagel, who was already by this point controversial for other reasons because of this book that she'd written, uh, Kill All Normies, a uh, sort of popular guide to the alt-right and the internet culture wars. Personally, I found it a sort of serviceable enough intro to that whole world for normies, I guess. Um, it was riddled with editorial mistakes and tendentious in a lot of ways and very insensitive in parts. And I think that that's a lot of what people latched onto in their critique of it. But about a year ago, she published this piece called The Left Case Against Open Borders. Um, it ran in a prominent American conservative journal called American Affairs, which I guess had originally thought of itself as a think tank for the Trump candidacy. Uh, yeah, it was like the intellectual wing of Trumpism, if that's not an oxymoron. Yeah, um, and I think after that, in 2016 or so, they basically became a sort of catch-all against the sort of uh, neoliberal or more libertarian wing of conservatism and actually began to seek out even left voices, putatively left voices perhaps, um, but even authors like Nancy Fraser, who wrote for, uh, who wrote for American Affairs. Uh, but needless to say, Angela Nagel's piece, coming as it did around the time of the migrant caravan a year ago, uh, both the venue um, it was published on and the timing of it was viewed as um, tone deaf uh, to the extreme, uh, to say nothing of the content. And then her subsequent appearance on Tucker Carlson, again, no friend of the left, um, to sort of say these open borders people are nuts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, her whole argument was, I mean, it's contained in a footnote, uh, but she mentions the fact that that and she's correct in this respect that Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn she's Irish so I guess the British political scene is also of interest to her um, they both have come out publicly against open borders as policy so while she is a very polarizing figure on the left um, I don't think that she's inconsistent on this score I think there it absolutely should be criticized from a communist perspective but her political perspective falls firmly within the horizon of social democracy in one country. Yeah, like that that's one thing that really caught my eye about your article when I started reading it. Like everyone on the left right now, I shouldn't say everyone, but the general consensus is that we like Bernie Sanders and we hate Angela Nagel. But if you really dig into what their politics are and what their political horizon is and their ideology they're really not that different. Although I would say that someone, again, who brands herself as a Marxist should probably know better. Yeah, and there's definitely some problems that I tried to get to in my article about saying that Karl Marx would be uh, run out of the modern-day left. I think that 
for his position on borders and immigration. Yeah, from a very, very tendentious reading of a letter he wrote about the Irish problem. He might be run out for his uh, his uh, drinking and his carousing and his rabble rousing. I'm not sure about the uh, open borders. Marx is canceled. All right. <laughs> um, I just wanted to read this quote from Bernie Sanders that I think illustrates what we're talking about. Now, um, you put it in your piece. This is in response to a question from Vox's Ezra Klein, correct? Friend of the mm-hmm. show. Yep. Fr- friend of the show, Comrade Klein. And uh, he asked him a question on open borders because I guess he just assumed that Bernie the Socialist would support such a program. And Bernie said, quote, open borders? That's a Koch brothers proposal, which I'm going to stop doing the Bernie voice. I just don't have it in me today, uh, which says there is no United States You'd be doing away with the concept of a nation state. If you believe in a nation state, that there's one country called the United States or the UK or Denmark or any other, you have an obligation, in my view, to do everything you can to help poor people. And he means poor people who are citizens of the US, I suppose. Presumably, yes. Uh, Because, you know, some of those immigrants are also going to be poor people, probably most of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right wing and then insert business people here, would love an open border policy that would bring in all kinds of people willing to work for only 2 or $3 per hour. So what do you make of this idea? Because I know a lot of people in the DSA were kind of annoyed that we endorsed a candidate who doesn't support open borders, especially after we passed on the consent agenda, which is the stuff that's so uncontroversial that you don't even need to debate it. At the convention, we passed a resolution in support of open borders at the convention, but it doesn't really have any teeth behind it because it doesn't say this. It says we have to incorporate it into our criteria for candidate endorsements, but like, I feel like people were always going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no like hard or fast policy or litmus test on it. And I can see how, you know, the people doing electoral work would be like, well, then who the fuck can we run? You know, we can only run like ones of us. We can only run actual socialists for like hyper local office, probably. You can only run uh, Max Stirner the fourth or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, like it's it's sort of an inconvenient truth that I'm trying to get at. And um, I, I brought it up on the majority report the other day, probably at the wrong time. And Sam got really annoyed with me. But like, I feel like the left doesn't really have an answer to this or the popular left yet. Um, so, like, what do you make of the idea that opening the borders would open us to this uh, flood of immigrants who would come in and take all the jobs and crash the welfare state? Well, I would say that it makes sense from a social democratic perspective. The communist principle, I think, fundamentally, and this was edited from the published piece, I think wisely, because it was intended for a more general audience. Oh, uh, real quick, folks. Uh, we're referring to Ross's piece from September in the Brooklyn Rail uh, called Nationalism, Borders, and the State. Uh, so we will put a link to that in the show description. Yeah, and we'll put a link to the version that's not paywalled, because the Brooklyn Rail one is, I believe, but there's a non-paywalled version on MR online. Yeah. So I think that the communists, principle has to be that human beings should be free to come and go as they please regardless of where they're from where they're looking to live what they're looking to do wherever it is that they go Um, but from a social democratic perspective from the perspective of 
the vehicle of social change is the sort of peaceful takeover of the pre-existing bourgeois state, one which, as it happens to be, is locked within national boundaries and their present configuration. Um, yes, it does make sense to say we need to protect our citizens, our workforce, from workers out from the outside who are willing to work for lower than what our workers have come to expect. It, it makes perfect sense within this logic. So we've seen some of this rhetoric um, on the part of right-wing parties in Europe, which have done uh, a much better job, shall we say, than the Republican Party here of combining some sort of basic social democratic welfare state with an anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, in the U.S., it's more uh, purely a rhetorical thing because, as we know, um, the GOP is waging an all-out war on the welfare state, but they're still not afraid to use this rhetoric to support their policies. Like Also, too, the social democratic welfare states of Europe, especially Scandinavia, for example, where this kind of economic nationalist right-wing uh, pro-welfare state politics is really moving forward, they have a lot more to lose. You know, the United States never had the kind of all-encompassing welfare states that were built out of social democracy in the 20th century that still exist to an extent in, in many European countries. Yeah, so that brings me to this latest news story here, um, headlined, U.S. immigrants will be denied entry if they can't afford health care. So let's see here. It says in The Guardian... Immigrants applying for U.S. visas will be denied entry into the country unless they can prove that they can afford health care within 30 days of entering, uh, according to a or or can pay for the care themselves out of pocket, according to a proclamation signed by President Trump. Now, whenever we speak about this on the Majority Report, or when we speak about the state massive amount of state violence that's being carried out against immigrants as we speak in this country, we're all very familiar with the concentration camps, let's call them what they are, um, the response from liberals and even social democrats is generally, um, well, not some social democrats, I'm getting to that, but it, it, it's the idea that this is purely a right-wing talking point, the idea of these invading hordes, it's just pure racism that they're using to try to get support from scared uh, working-class white people, I guess, usually, or, you know, bougie-ass white people, too, who own a ski dealership or whatever, which is actually more of Trump's base. I feel like poor whites get, paid, get blamed for a lot of shit that they don't do in large numbers. Not to say that there are none of them in the Trump coalition, but they're not a substantial part, not as substantial as people would like to believe. The liberal response is generally something to the effect of, well, that would never happen. That's crazy. There's no evidence that um, opening the borders. There's no evidence that a more generous welfare state combined with more open borders would cause a flood of immigration. And even if we had more immigrants, um, the U.S. is a large country and it has an infinite capacity to absorb uh, people, workers, and uh, dependence on the welfare state, yada, yada. Um, and I think people get very upset when you start to make these critiques because when you say, oh, this is a real possibility that we have to think about, they think that you're feeding into right-wing talking points. So, like, what do, do you think that there's any, uh, anything there? Do you think there's any weight behind this idea that a flood of immigrants would crash the welfare state? Well, um, 
I can say that within the social democratic imagination, even its proponents, even its defenders in some cases in states where a robust social democratic welfare state already exists, they certainly perceive it as a potential problem. Um, sometimes they view it more as uh, workers who are willing to come in and undercut wages for domestic workers. Sometimes they view it as um, foreigners who are coming to leech off of our great benefits that generations of hard hardworking Danes or uh, or Swedes have you know built up over the decades. Um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, uh, as I was writing the piece, uh, the uh, the Danish Social Democratic Party elected this very right wing, uh, very anti-immigrant uh, leader, and she won the popular majority there. Um, and you've certainly there's an author who also writes for the Brooklyn Rail whose work I I appreciate a lot and who really informed a lot of my own arguments, Jamie Merchant, who wrote about how really already in uh, countries like Scandinavia who are upheld by the sort of Jacobin social democratic crowd as the sort of the society that we would like to achieve ourselves, they're already using the social democratic welfare state as a cudgel against immigrants saying that, oh, well, they're just coming here to steal, you know, all the things that our forefathers built for us, that they gave to us. So one can already see the potential for this being used to to xenophobic ends. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because a lot of people don't think it's practical to think of anything beyond defending the welfare state or defending or developing the economy of one country by sheltering it from this globalized neoliberal regime, right? It seems like those are the only two choices. I think that undergirding the communist position is, as always, a historical materialist position, which seeks to denaturalize, as you said in the article, denaturalize things that we, can, that we take for granted. The idea that there are borders, that there are armed men on those borders keeping people out, the idea that your political and economic rights are bounded within a particular geographic and political configuration is a relatively new concept uh, and reality for humanity, you know, a few hundred years old. In your piece, you do a really good job of examining how boundaries turn into borders. Do you want to give us, uh, give the listeners a sense of, um, of how the, the, this modern thing of borders that we want to be open against even came into existence? Sure, yeah. I think this is the, the foundational Marxist gesture, right? I always look to his um, analysis of the commodity form this sort of mundane object that we interact daily and that we assume to be a sort of natural fact of life. And he tries to show the way in which it came into existence through a very tumultuous process um, spanning centuries. And so I tried to do something analogous with the existence of borders, um, which links in a sort of um, circuitous way with uh, the process of enclosure, the idea that this thing belongs to me. One can view, perhaps, borders as an extrapolation of this principle. But needless to say, if you travel back, if one were to have a time machine and travel back millennia, you would not see anything like this the sort of state system, the, or even as we conceptualize it, as we visualize it, really, uh, in terms of maps that we sort of see in our head and we think of, oh, 
like whenever you think of the United States or Canada or any country in Europe or Asia, you can sort of picture their shape, their outline in your head. This sort of this process of like where a state begins and ends, this came into existence over the course of millennia. I cited, um, of course, you know, empires existed. One can say that, you know, they they had a certain extent. They were able to draw tribute from, you know, lands that were far away from them. But re- the real reach of um, these ancient states, um, what Marx might have called uh, uh, Oriental despotism or whatnot, uh, was was very limited in practice. So. I had, there's this great example of the Moroccan sultans who they had these coastal cities basically where they ruled uh, and they extracted tribute from the countryside. But really, their decrees from their imperial courts, you know, nobody listened to them or cared about them beyond a certain remove from the capital. So they referred to the, the hinterlands away from the coasts as... Uh, the realm of insolence <laughs> that basically people didn't give a fuck what the emperor or the sultan said and so really their rule in practice was nowhere near what subsequent historians would, would draw as like the line encompassing their empire and I think bringing it forward into the in the early modern period you also see a shift too from the state being a um, something embodied in a in an individual ruler, something that uh, is tied to a bloodline, something that is uh, a, ser- a series of boundaries mm-hmm. uh, that are um, as much personal as they are political. <laughs> the personal is political. Uh, it's only with the kind of like Westphalian system that arises in the 17th, 18th century that, and certainly with the French Revolution too, that the state becomes something. It becomes a, a, a civic reality. It becomes something that you're you're born into that has political institutions and rules and is disembodied, you know, from say a king or a queen, mm-hmm. um, and is is based on um, you know the the political citizen. This idea of citizenship, right, mm-hmm. only arises two two hundred and fifty years ago, right? more or less. Yes. More or less. So that so even like what we imagine the state to be. Uh, what we imagine uh, the realms of uh, insolence uh, versus the realms of acquiescence to be yeah. uh, in the past have changed considerably, even in you know the relatively recent past. Yeah. So the I mean the big shift that Marxists are most concerned with is that from feudalism to capitalism, and hopefully down the road we're still working towards it to communism. Um, really, feudalism, like the various kingdoms that we imagine. Uh, retrospectively, um, they were nowhere near as uh, secure in their or st- as stable in their existence as we as we like to think. Subsequently, really, the the system of of, of bonds that existed uh, of vassalage was it was wildly subject to to shift. Um, there were shifting allegiances. People who felt you know the king is weak, the king is strong. I'll I'll, I'll back him or not, and so like. It had nowhere near the, the kind of territorial integrity as subsequently arose based on this new economic form of life called capitalism. Um, once With capitalism, in order to sort of control the flows of, of labor and of capital, um, state systems had to d- develop a form of rationality that allowed them to, to legislate 
to enact laws and to regulate the flow of wealth in and out of their country and the flow of workers in and out of their country. And so it's around this time, really only in the 19th century, when you begin to see uh, customs and uh, tariffs uh, of, of the sort that we imagine them today. And that's honestly when they began to become an issue for the labor movement, which there was always this tension um, even from the early days, um, and where I would take issue, especially with Nagel in her characterization of past Marxist movements, saying that Marx would be unwelcome today on the left, uh, betrays a kind of radical ignorance of what Marx himself, Engels certainly, um, and subsequent revolutionary Marxists, the way that they oriented themselves uh, to the problem of foreign versus domestic labor forces. Um, certainly they acknowledged it as a challenge. They, didn't, they, they saw its potential to, to divide the working class. But their internationalist motto, famously in the Communist Manifesto, was that workers of all countries should unite. And within uh, a specific labor market, a national labor market, um, there should be efforts to uh, extend solidarity to documented and undocumented workers to abolish uh, the down with the Damocles sort of deportation, as Karl Liebknecht put it. Um, so this is very much a, an established tradition on the left, uh, certainly the Marxist left, that Nagel um, is either unaware of or um, prefers to ignore. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to hit because a lot of the times... The, the left responses to the call for closing the borders or letting workers, quote unquote, letting American workers control the supply of labor, which is a kind of a nebulous category in the first place, right? Because what is the American workforce? Mm -hmm. It doesn't include people working overseas for U.S. companies. Does it include all the undocumented workers who are already yeah. here? Like, no, uh, not in their minds. So on the one hand, you can't just say you're just being racist, right? We need a materialist response to this that illustrates very clearly how it benefits all workers, including the ones born in the U.S., to have a relaxing of borders for people, the free movement of people. Uh, I mean, it seems very clear to me, like we talked about in our episode with Justin Agers Chacon, um, like the fact that undocumented workers might be willing to work for only two or three dollars an hour, like Bernie Sanders says, that's not just an immutable fact of life. That's not an essential characteristic of the workers. That is a, the result of a discrete set of policy decisions designed to uphold capitalism. And the way that you deal with that, the thing that's driving down the wages, right, is not just these workers who constitutionally are devoted to working in fields for very little money, right? It's the criminalization of these workers and the denial of rights to them that makes mm -hmm. it difficult for them to organize, right? Otherwise, you're being kind of a racial essentialist about like, oh, these workers just can't be organized. And on top of the policy aspects of it, of course, too, it's inherent to the nature of capital, of course, to move around. That's what capital does. So, of course, there are differentials in development across the world, right? And uh, capital will always flee. Capital will always try to find the venue where the labor is the cheapest as a factor of production, because obviously in this profit-driven system, 
the you know it will seek out those policies even right that necessary in order to exploit workers at a higher level so even like politics aside right it's the nature of capitalism is to do this right is to force people mm-hmm. to work for two or three dollars an hour uh in malaysia in central america so it, it's it's lar- it's broader than even like one policy in one particular country mm-hmm. so Jimmy mentioned like what the revolutionary alternative to this might be and I think because it was intended for a more general audience um, we decided not to go into that in too much detail because that's what you're here for that's what you're on the Antifada for that is what we exactly. do like to go deep here on the Antifada yeah like the the idea that we need to shelter our workers from the global market as a way, like, that's the only way we can get socialism. It seems very short-sighted to me. But what, what is the alternative? So the elephant in the room here, I mean, and I don't, I know it's an uncomfortable term. It was even in the 1890s when Engels was still alive, is the dictatorship of the proletariat. And what, I wish I had a sound drop right now, like, <laughs> what? Dick prol, baby, <laughs> dick prol. Yeah, so what is that? it's obviously a form of workers' power, a workers' state. I think the problem that most social democratic politicians run up against is that they conceive of the state as, you know, the U.S. government as presently constituted just with different actors at the helm, just with our people holding the reins of power. I think that what Marx and Engels and subsequent Marxists, revolutionary Marxists, internationalists conceived the dictatorship of the proletariat as was not just, you know, the existing bourgeois state of the United States or Canada or X or Y country in Europe or in Asia, no matter how big. Um, It's rather unfortunate that the historical memory of, say, the Soviet Union is that of more or less occupying the same borders as the old Russian Empire, Because the original intent, of course, of the Russian revolutionaries of 1917 was not just a revolution in Russia, but rather a world revolution. Presumably the center of power, if revolution had succeeded in Germany or even further west a hundred years ago now, would not have been Moscow. It would have been, and really the, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the workers' government that would have emerged, it really would not have honored any of the existing uh, borders of nation states it would its power would extend as far as workers had the upper hand against capital and it would act in their interests even where they would not i mean this was and this is getting perhaps into um into the realm of insolence yeah well into some <laughs> some some interesting historical territory um there was a big debate within the common term when it was first founded as to whether as to whether the Red Army was the army of a specific country, the Soviet Union, or whether it was the army of the international, whether it belonged to the Comintern. The, and the reason why this was important was, say that there are workers in Hungary saying, like, you know, the capitalists are about to stomp us. You know, can you please send help? Um, the idea is, like, if you have a standing army, a national army, and obviously national armies have often been deployed through various uh, excuses to defend a country even far away. But the idea here was that that the dictatorship of the proletariat, it would not 
it would not be limited or bound to any of the states that we see today. It would be something rather, an amalgamation, a higher unity of nations, perhaps, an international force that would then eventually work to dissolve borders. And this is why, actually, even the calls for open borders, while doubtless well-intentioned, and you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to them, are somewhat misconceived because the goal is not just to open borders, but rather to do away with borders as such. Um, well, some people think that that's the same thing, like Bernie Sanders, and I feel like that might be true. Yeah, and we should be honest about that. Like, if you stop enforcing a border, doesn't it cease to mean anything? Like, the, the analysis... Okay, the analogy that my friend gave when we were speaking about this in the context of the DSA resolution... Um, which, by the way, I think the analysis was correct, right? It's like, whereby borders are a tool used by capitalists to pit workers from different nations against one another in a race to the bottom. Yep. We support opening the borders. And I was like, well, why don't we support abolishing borders? Then isn't that effectively the same thing? And my friend's like, well, if you have a door, uh, is isn't it different to open the door than to like remove the door from its hinges? And I thought about it for a second and I was like, no, not really. Cause if the door is always open and it can't be closed, then like, that's literally what a door is. What else is a door for, you know? But, th- but they, then, then he went into the idea that this is um, some somehow a state demand and abolishing borders is an anti-state demand. But I feel like opening the borders is also an anti-state demand in a way. What do you think? So, I think it would be an anti-state demand in the sense that historically Marxists have argued for the eventual withering away of the state. So I think that ultimately the existence of borders is bound up with the state component of the nation state. Their efficacy is entirely tied to the ability of states to enforce, regulate through armies, customs, various officials, uh, bureaucrats, um, the flow of people and of of wealth um, so that effectively doing away with borders does mean the withering away of the state. And so perhaps, I mean, I'm just as I would say it's utopian to call for, you know, the state to, to go away tomorrow. It's, it is utopian to call for borders to go away tomorrow. Yet I think that's absolutely the goal that we should be setting for ourselves and we should be, completely honest about that um and we should have as our immediate goals perhaps minimum demands if we want to phrase it uh like that as the relaxation of borders uh to the absolute extent that they can be um tomorrow uh while realizing that their eventual abolition is tied to the abolition of the state as such yeah like the resolution goes into some of these demands how we can move towards that horizon now, which I think is always really important to connect it up to the here and now, which is uh, demilitarizing the border, decriminalizing migration, um, and creating a path to citizenship and emphasizing the free movement of people rather than, because we already have open borders for capital in the ruling class. We're only talking about workers. We're only talking about working class people here. You say in your piece, though, that um, even these left economic nationalism, a lot of these parties advocate closing the borders for capital, but not for people. And you say that ultimately that becomes a contradiction. Can you explain that a little bit? So, I mean, I would say that obviously it's easier to perhaps move capital than it is to move people um, 
and it's easier to perhaps ship jobs overseas uh, by moving one's plants there um, than it is to import a you know a low paid workforce uh, domestically. Though often capital you know uses both strategies in order to enrich itself. I mean, it takes what it can where it can. But I don't think at the same time that it's a coincidence that someone like Trump uh, and this new wave of perhaps anti-neoliberal conservatives um, have been invoking protectionist rhetoric at the level of trade as well. I don't think that that's... And I think perhaps they're they're more consistent in that respect, seeing trade and uh, the free flow of people as somehow bound to each other. Because, of course, people are going to follow possible routes of employment. You know, if they're if they're in a country where, you know, there are no jobs to be had or the jobs that are to be had are don't pay, you know, enough to live on, then they're going to go where they can, you know, to not have them to to be able to find work. Um so I think that I think that the the left economic nationalism um sort of fails to see that that the sort of protectionist rhetoric and the sort of closed borders to people is very much in in line with it, with itself in, in terms of like the new right consen- the emerging right consensus um and what what's happening with a lot of the um with people like Nagel and uh j w Mason is that they're still waging the 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 ideological struggle with neoliberalism which I think maybe should have been, you know, discredited in 2008. It's maybe taken 10 years or so for the other shoe to drop. Um, But I think with Trump and with the new wave of uh, right-wing nationalists around the world, um, the old logic of um, free markets for all, you know, even open borders to capital is um, that that day is passed and they're trying to, embark upon trade wars with China and renegotiate uh, NAFTA and other 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 things. So I think a lot of the left economic nationalists have been caught flat-footed by the right's pivot against free trade. Um, and so they're still trying to duke it out, you know, with terms of maybe the anti-globalization movement of the 80s and or of the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and so they've been outmaneuvered effectively. It seems to me that um, so much of this current wave of, uh, of a re-emerging socialist movement is very backwards-looking. It wants to recreate a, ser- a configuration that existed in the post-war period, so 50, 60, 70 years ago, under conditions that are extremely different. So for all the chaos, for example, that trying to open borders would mean in the world... Um, if we were to try to do it immediately, right? If we were just open up the Mexican border or open up the Canadian border for people and obviously for capital too. For all that, um, there's a similar sort of chaos that would exist if uh, you tried to you know, re-implement uh, nationally bounded Keynesian uh, economic policies within individual nation states around the country. For example, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, Each country essentially had its own steel industry, had its own car industry, uh, had its own rubber industry. 
nation's economies were relatively bounded and produced a heterogeneous mixture of things, whereas now we're in back in this sort of competitive advantage type economy where one country is good at making this, they trade with another company, there's these complex flows of supplies, uh, logistics chains. So the idea that you could graft on you know, a uh, 1940s policy, a Bretton's Woods uh, financial policy, uh, a tariff policy from the 1950s, yes, it leads to something that looks like an autarky, and the right is always better at that. You know, An mm-hmm. autarky being a, an economy that is like isolated from the rest of the world, that produces everything yeah. that it needs so you don't need trade. It's self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. The right is better at those, actually, at those sort of policies and that kind of imaginary because they don't pretend to think that immigrants from Central America or from China matter, right? They, they are... There's this emerging right-wing economic nationalism that is not in contradiction with a close-the-borders police and brutalized immigrants type rhetoric and they'll do it a lot better than the left will and it is an imaginary right like some of the rhetoric that we saw around brexit where they're like oh yeah we want to return to the halcyon days of england as just this self-contained island that made everything that it needed like ever heard of a thing called the british empire Yeah, it's like they they want to revive the Commonwealth somehow, right? Uh, the, the the this uh, network of nations that existed after its empire that traded within itself. So I guess like my my point and and kind of what this brings us to are some of the dangers inherent even in this social democratic moment itself, which is that this kind of left economic nationalism almost motivates these same sort of uh, potentially reactionary forces that we see in Trump. It's almost the same moment, but from a different side. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the problems that a lot of, like, for example, in Germany, um, within Die Linke, um, Sarah Wagenknecht... That's the left party. The left party, yes. The Social Democratic Party in Germany they felt that they've had to respond to losing some of their voters to um, alternative for Deutschland. Um, and they've done so by trying to make concessions to the right. And this has often been the case historically, is that social democratic parties will extend this sort of conciliatory policy initiative, uh, in this case, Wagenknecht, taking a more uh, uh, anti-immigrant line than, than uh, Angela Merkel. Um, that, you know, in the idea that they will there, thereby, you know, shore themselves up against right-wing xenophobia by promoting, you know, a more moderate version, like extending, like, some protections to domestic workers. Oh, uh, and bringing in the liberal rhetoric, right, of, like, diversity is good. We are a patchwork of many cultures, and that's beneficial to us. Yeah, that's the liberal framework for, like, diversity means that you can, like, um, go and... Uh, I don't know, enjoy uh, ethnic food somewhere, right? With like highly exploited immigrant labor making it. And you feel very proud of yourself that you enjoy Thai food, right? I think a taco truck on every corner would be (laughs) delicious. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The problem, though, is that often these social democratic parties feel like they will sate the xenophobic appetite of the sort of the populace in general, when in fact especially for right-wingers, it only whets their appetite for further uh, measures. And as, as Sean is saying, they do this much more uh, unapologetically and much more effectively than the left usually is willing to go, though the left is, of course, prone to very reactionary tendencies. And I feel like, again, Nagel's argument 
is reactionary. It is, and we should criticize it as such. What my article, my criticism tried to, to show is that this reactionary logic is inherent within a certain form of social democratic uh, politics. Yeah, that, that reminds me of another uh, criticism that has been levied by some against the rhetoric of open borders or free movement of people, which I think is a better way to frame it. Yes. Or even the idea of it, which is that it currently polls poorly and we need to do things that are already popular with the working class uh, in order to get them to vote for Bernie Sanders or else there's no point to it and it's just like pure utopianism like how would you respond and it's been or used it's performative that's a that's yeah. a term that people like to use a lot that nonsense. is just performative nonsense and, and rad lib shit yeah and it's been used to make arguments in favor of social conservatism as well i know we've harped a bit mm-hmm. about normie socialism on this show but like what's your response to that well i'm probably not as invested in electing sanders or other dsa branded democrats as as oh. others might be but um I, even within that, within that framework, I find this to be a very weak, or I mean, even a non-argument. Um, the idea that we need to meet people where they are in the sense of adopting uncritically their present attitudes. Um, what is politics if not winning them over to um, a vision of, of a transformed world? You know, one that, of course, their views are not going to mirror the views that we would like them to at present. Our entire Per, our raison d'etre should be as socialists to win them over to a a world in which you know present conditions, present material limitations, you know, would be lifted, would be dissolved. Yeah, that gets to the million dollar question, and one that I think that sort of the 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 communist left versus the socialist left and the socialist left, I should say, has been trying to grapple with for 150 years, right? Which is what is the connection between this social democratic moment that's happening right now and this communist demand, you know, this demand to go over and to abolish uh, borders, but also all other sorts of states and uh, capitalist social relations, right? Mm -hmm. What's the connection to that? Because the way that it's framed now, uh, that we're framing it even, it's not a program, it's almost pre-programmatic mm-hmm. to, to understand the, the abolition of all borders. Um, how, how does one even push that demand? How does that demand exist within a very diverse set of, um, of politics on, on the left right now? Um, you know, how does, uh, you know, what sort of things do we advocate and how do we push those forward? Well, historically, I mean, we're not where we were 100, 150 years ago, but the tensions um, that we're examining were very present. The difference, of course, was that the split between social democratic and communist politics occurred um, from a a once unified revolutionary labor movement that spanned many different countries, uh, was very militant, um, and it arose as a kind of bifurcation um, between... And of course, not to trace everything back to August 1914, but the dilemma of whether, you know, social democratic parties should side with their own government, their own national interests against, you know, potentially the interests of the international working class as a whole. This is perhaps the the central political contradiction between 
uh, social, the social democratic left and the communist left. The communist left has, of course, uh, disagreed uh, in certain particulars over how internationalism uh, should uh, should be made manifest, whether it should pursue policies of national liberation in the in the colonial periphery, whether it should, um, in the more left communist tradition, um, advocate a coordinated international revolution in uh, the imperial core. Um, but I think that we're, we're existing in a moment where the existing communist parties, uh, of even, you know, of 1917 to 1989, 1991, uh, some of them still eke out a miserable existence. Um, the old Stalinists, uh, there are still trot parties that hang on still small left communist parties, probably the tradition that I'm, I'm most sympathetic to, um, but the zeitgeist, as it were, uh, is very much with um, maybe maybe millennial socialists, uh, people who are just coming to understand socialism uh, as something that's not a scary word. Um, and perhaps a figure like, like Sanders, who's been extremely consistent in his views um, for the last 30, 40 years, um, there's a reason why he is a very inspiring figure to that to that milieu. Um, but I think that of course, for those of us who, you know, are like knee deep in this shit and are nerds about like historical tendencies that are probably in reality don't matter anymore. It is our duty to, to push, um, beyond the sort of immediate, uh, limits of the imagination that, that perhaps people who are just coming, uh, to familiarize themselves with socialism or even socialist demands, um, you know, might, might think is like the limits of the possible. Um, so, I mean, maybe it does poll badly. Um, I don't, I don't, the, the great thing about polling is that it shifts all the time. Um, and it's not unimaginable that it will, you know, someday be popular. And I think that one thing that's been missing from this conversation and is often missing when you're talking about um, politics broadly, right, are the actual people uh, for, for which this is important and uh, for who, who we would actually need in order to, to bring some sort of uh, abolition of borders or freedom of movement for peoples about, which are, of course, the international working class. So far be it from us to imagine that we can go out and start to organize things like cross-border unions. Uh, far be it from us to imagine that we could start to create transnational political parties, you know, in the broad sense, that could actually break the bonds of that. But that is something that we need to be looking towards anyways. When you mentioned the Coleman turn earlier, that was, of course, a an unsuccessful ultimately attempt yes. at creating a communist international that would transcend all of that. It ends up becoming a, essentially a subsidiary of Moscow yes. um, and ends up not succeeding in its goal of creating a international working class that is both militant and able to coordinate itself across borders and across continents. But I think, Ross, your, your point is well taken that in this moment right now, there's a lot of shift. And it's not that we're inventing this conception of like an international working class. It's not that we're 
inventing this idea of open or abolished borders. It's actually a resurrection of a tradition that arises in the same tradition as a lot of these social Democrats do. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility, or it's, it's certainly not you know, performative, and it's certainly not, um, I don't know, uh, unrealistic to try to take these sort of demands and these sort of political visions and horizons and bring them back into what is a growing left socialist movement, which will have a diversity of opinion on this and many other things, and ultimately will, you know, those political lines will diverge and become clear, and they'll have to be fought over. Absolutely. I mean, I think DSA within itself does this very effectively where our electoral campaigns kind of serve to bring people in and raise class consciousness. And then once they join, they can go to political ed and learn that Bernie Sanders is not even a socialist. He's a social Democrat. And in order to really win back the world that has been stolen from us, we're going to need to go beyond that. And we're going to need to really think through what it would mean to be a revolutionary Marxist organization in non-revolutionary times. I think where we run into trouble is that message hasn't really penetrated very much of the working class right now. Like your average millennial socialist, you could probably see a picture of them in your head. Um, it is, it, they're not, not the working class, but we're a very small, unrepresentative slice of the working class right now. Like how do we, I mean, it's a big question, but how are we going to change that? And maybe, maybe like to tie it into just something very mundane. Like, maybe you're right that that and whoever is saying that you know the open borders demand is unpopular. But even in just casual conversation with people at your workplace, anybody who's ever tried to leave the country, whoever has had to put up with bullshit at customs, how many British jobs do you plan on taking? Or like anyone who's concerned about seeing their coworkers getting rounded up by ICE. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point as well. Any any sort of human connection that you have that is threatened by this very violent border regime. Um, these are these are perhaps in ro- places where you can where you can have conversations that do challenge the idea that oh well, of course states need borders. Of course we can't just let anybody in. Uh, with the sort of common sense that people usually fall back on. Um, common sense is dangerous very often. Of course. And it's the kind of common sense that usually, get, you know, in a very material sense can be challenged as soon as one has to cross a border or as soon as one faces the prospect of losing a, a coworker with whom they've become close or have become friends uh, simply because they don't have their papers in order or uh, were born in the wrong country um, to, to work here legally. Um, or whatnot. These are these are. If one is interested in perhaps changing someone's individual opinion, these are these are good places, I think, to start. Now, I don't want to be a uh, catastrophist here. I don't want to be like a uh, classic Trotskyist. You know, the sky is falling, Chicken Little style. But um, I've done what you know some of my favorite political thinkers have done. Um, you know, like when uh, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, fled St. Petersburg and went to a small cabin and wrote the April Theses. Or like, uh, I don't know, Hillary Clinton when she lost the 2016 election and went into the woods for a while to to collect herself. I've been in a very similar uh, position to that where I've had a lot of time recently as I've been away from the show and and other things to kind of uh, think about the world and reevaluate the world. 
And one of the things that's been very, very frightening as I've read up on it and as I've kind of taken it all in is, of course, the climate change uh, issue. And I think maybe to put a finer point on this, uh, these movements of people, whether it be from Syria or whether it be from Central America, uh, this cannot be separated from the sort of horrific weather events that we're seeing, the sort of changing climate, you know, especially in the global south right now, that is going that is increasing and will only increase in the future. There is some urgency for us to start to address and confront this issue of these boundaries, these armed boundaries between people, these political and military boundaries between states, because we're back footed right now. And as more and more migrants start to move around the globe, which will be unfortunately necessary in the coming years and decades, we need to be in front of that. We need to be making a socialist and even a humanitarian uh, case uh, that, you know, we, we can't keep ourselves separated as a class or even as a people from these folks uh, who are trying to flee disaster because you can see the exterminationist rhetoric already from the right being trotted out. All these trial balloons put up, you know, I'm not saying that it's conscious, but certainly there are people out there who recognize that this kind of catastrophe is happening and they're trying to get us used to the idea of people with machine guns mowing down climate change refugees. And that's very fucking frightening. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this the other day on the majority report as well. Like, the stage is set for a kind of eco-fascism. I mean, we see it already. Uh, most of the GOP still wants to deny the realities of climate change right now. But like, yeah, but I mean, they're still building bunkers in their private islands or whatever. And like Naomi Klein was talking about this. Once the right accepts the realities of climate change, we're going to see some even more horrifying politics from them. And I think that's why it's so important for the left to be laying a framework out right now that makes sense to people on more than just a moral or ethical level, on a material level, for why the free movement of people is crucial to defeating our class enemies. Um, but it, like, this is not a demand that can be made in a vacuum, right? Like, if we just open the borders and leave the global capitalist system intact it won't really be free movement of people because capital is still going to be moving people around. Mm -hmm. So we also have to be decreasing the push factors. And that's also in the DSA resolution, ramping down of imperialism, meddling in foreign governments, um, attacking the problem of climate change for whatever that might do. So like this always needs to be made within a larger framework. Of and that's, that's something certainly that I didn't go into at great length in my piece, but it was in the back of my mind. I know there are some who find the the, the specter of eco-fascism to be alarmist, or uh, especially because of the 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 pervasiveness of climate denial on the part of the right right now. But the prospect that they could shift gears suddenly and say, "Oh well, climate change is a reality," and we certainly need to as it becomes more and more evident in our day-to-day -day yeah. lives. Where they, where they begin to say climate change is a reality and we need to protect ours. I mean, this is, this is a very real prospect. And um, one can see, I mean, even in other places, flashpoints of, of border tensions like Kashmir in India and Pakistan, um, even in places like that haven't, you know, really militarized their borders uh, yet 
if there were floods in Bangladesh, for example, that would cause tens of millions of people to suddenly pull up roots and try and move into other, you know, highly populated centers of India, for example, this would absolutely cause ethnic strife and possibly, you know, you know, extreme, extremely violent uh, outcomes. Certainly, not that Modi, the is a president or prime minister of India. The leader, the, the leader thank you. The leader of India. Certainly the dear leader of India. He was not put in there, of course, to for an eco-fascist agenda. But if you look at what Modi's done in terms of almost genocidal, anti-Islamic policies when he was the governor of his state, and now that he is um, the leader of India, and he's really pushing this extreme sort of ethnic and sectarian line, uh, Hindu nationalism, you can only imagine... Right, that that Modi as this strong man, what he would do, you know, if you had a, a crisis in largely Muslim Bangladesh, yeah. and there's a perfect example where he's not right now an eco-fascist, but there's so much within the policy set and the internal framework of this right-wing nationalism that lends itself to that. One, as this crisis continues, and once this crisis reach, reaches a boiling point, point where yes, the right wing realizes that this is real, and they just. It's the same ideology and the same practice that they would put into place, which is just that, which is that, uh, you know, we're going to close our borders and we're going to shoot anybody that comes over them. And we're also going to, of course, inside our borders at the same time, because especially a place like India, but also, you know, the United States, which has a strong white nationalist core to it, that would very quickly internally also become a purge and potentially a sort of genocidal attack on uh, people of color within this border or migrants within the border. You can just see these things falling into place. And again, this is why it's very important to get ahead of it. We've and already seen, We've already seen attacks on people of color and on immigrants, obviously. Like the mass shooting in El Paso had very clear white supremacist nativist underpinnings. He specifically wanted to counter this alleged threat posed by the outsider, right? Replacement as the, yeah. in, the, in the fascist uh you know, imagination. Check out uh, History as a Weapon on uh, The Great Replacement. Uh, you can find it uh, wherever fine podcasts are not sold but free. Uh, we did an entire one on The Camp of the Saints, which, uh, again, is a very timely book for uh, the Marine Le Pens and the Steve Bannons of the world because it does, of course, envision a great replacement of ethnic whites by immigrants. And these people are starting to understand that this migration is an existential threat to their power, right, and to their interest, and they will start to utilize the sort of policies we know they're capable of in order to stop people from moving. I mean, what this brings to mind for me, and I feel like I'm going to get accused of being a little pie in the sky here, but we had a lot of discussions at commie camp. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it on the show, but it's pretty deep in, so hopefully uh, that's okay. All the snitches stopped listening like 20 minutes ago. It's fine. Yeah, fair enough. Um, like combining this model of collective care and how we're going to live after we expropriate the built environment, right, in these units of maybe 200 people. This isn't a program, right? It's just a, it's an imaginary. It's an idea trying to think through how we're going to do this. Um, in these sort of building size units, you know, once we abolish the family as a unit of consumption and we're all banding together in order to survive in units of 200 after we move into like... In a very sexy way. 
in a very, very sexy way with sexy results um, in the, you know, massive orgies in the Goldman Sachs boardroom or whatever. Um, one thing we always need to watch out for is, you know, when left to our own devices, people can sometimes be tribalistic. We need to make sure that these are not uh, ethnically homogenous units. They're not culturally homogenous units. Um, and in fact, they are led by people who have been historically marginalized. Um, and I feel like when we're thinking about how to deal with a hotter, wetter world, when we're thinking about how the human race is going to band together in order to survive, it makes a whole lot of sense that we can welcome people in from places that are no longer inhabitable and get them in the mix in a way that benefits everyone. And like, we need to share resources, right? There's always going to be scarcity. Um, and that brings me back also to the idea that, oh, somehow it's going to crash the welfare state. Now, this might be like an unpopular accelerationist opinion, but like, what if it does? Like The piven cloward acceleration. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, this goes, I mean, I didn't invent this. Like, this goes back to the piven cloward strategy of trying to get as many people as possible to sign up for government benefits. And, you know, that could easily be extended to like, extending more government benefits, getting more people onto there. And like Wilson said, I feel like she was quoting someone, but if the system cannot provide a humane life for everyone, then it's the system that needs to change. It's not the people. It's not our needs for, you know, food and shelter and whatever. And I feel like that has the ancillary benefit of abolishing a system that we all find to be very problematic in the first place. Yikes, capitalism's problematic. Yeah, I'm not sure whether um, signing more people onto public benefits would ameliorate or obviate the antagonisms of capitalism. Um, if it would do the latter, then of course it's to be hoped for um, that that it would sort of make make the contradictions more obvious that the system itself is inadequate to providing a human life for all. Um, but I mean, I guess the fear that some people have is that it's going to go the other way and be used as grounds to attack the welfare state by saying, oh, well, we're always going to have capitalism. And if the welfare state can't coexist with capitalism, then we need to destroy it. Yeah, there are all sorts of different ways that, that like things can be destroyed. Yeah, like we're losing... Good ways and bad ways. We're losing the, uh, you know, the, the slight welfare state we had anyways at this point in time. I'm not making an accelerationist argument, but it does follow from that that there's like a robust defense of things like, you know, welfare programs in like the United States, for example. And there really isn't. There's the beginning of it, but there isn't even really much of a defense of it. I want to, unless you had something to say. Yeah, I mean, there is some wiggle room there very clearly which is profits surplus value that's being extracted from the workers of the world for the benefit of a very small number of people so if we're looking for places where we could take some from so that everyone can have enough that's the most logical place to go and i want to to kind of end things out here to kind of finish things out maybe we talked about linguistic slippage before maybe put a finer point on this conception of abolition. I think the word abolish is often used to, to mean the ending of, the getting rid of a particular institution or set of policies. I think that maybe a better way to look at what this entire show, you know, even just the Antifada in general and also 
the communist movement is looking towards is not simply the abolition of things like borders, things like capital, but really they're aufheben, they're overcoming. Um, I think that oftentimes people confuse abolition, which almost seems like a destructive force, with overcoming, which is synthesizing the you know what existed in the past and dialectically overcoming and you know what I mean, incorporating into something new. So I think maybe that's the way that we should look at our politics around capitalism in general, right? Is that we don't want to just destroy, 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 per se. There are things that need to be, of course, destroyed and abolished. Um, but like, what is what does an overcoming of borders even look like, right? Yes. What, so it's the way that they're abolished. Because right. they could be abolished in favor of, you know, as I go from my piece, you know, a sort of pre-capitalist arrangement of of uh, space in which borders don't exist but that's because of all sorts of other material factors that are highly undesirable, feudalism to wit, um, if not even more uh, antiquated uh, forms of existence Yeah, no one wants to go back to that Yeah, uh, I think that I mean, there is a way in which and Marx and Engels did sort of get at this in um in their later writings, uh, in which things would come full circle, as it were, like having gone through this sort of uh, saga, this historical saga of class struggle and these various modes of production that have, you know, come and gone and culminated in capitalism, uh, that we would return to a state of existence that in certain very broad respects resembles perhaps the original, you know, human mode of organization, primitive communism, as he called it, but which would incorporate the accomplishments, the advances of all that preceded it. Um, yeah, well, I like to call it glam prim. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to live in a yurt, but with Wi-Fi and a toilet. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but one that, that, again, like, to put it into, like, the very neat, like, principles like like Marx uh, described in the critique of the Goto program uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need like the communist principle as far as borders go I to reiterate I think it has to be that human beings should be free to come and go as they please you know regardless of you know what reason they might have for going somewhere or for, or of going away from somewhere else they should be able to go without question. Um, and maybe that should be folded into need, you know, that whether they need to be someplace or other. Um, it should go without asking. And obviously that requires a world in which borders simply don't exist. And again, for the people who try to naturalize a sort of um, ethnic or linguistic chauvinism or a sort of uh, primordial human xenophobia, you know, that exists towards people who speak differently or look different or live in different ways. When you go back, again, human beings have been around for, you know, in their modern form, 100,000 years. For most of our existence, human beings, of course, did not live without borders. And they certainly moved around a lot. If there's one thing that kind of punctuates human history is this movement. And it's not, as you said, this, this overcoming, this Alfheben, right? 
hopefully we'll be able to synthesize that and not bring us back to a more natural form, but certainly a form that we evolved into, which is being able to move from place to place with freedom uh, because of push factors, but also for pull factors. So maybe a kind of primitive communist um, nomadism or something like that is possible to imagine in, in some faraway future, right? That would kind of bring us back to this, I think this, this kind of wanderlust, this Vogel that uh, human beings, I think, are, are, have, have evolved and have been born with, right? To be able to, to move around the earth and uh, to see things and see people. And I think that the xenophobic human nature argument uh, is just belied by all of the history. Yeah. Real Evo psych hours up in here. I mean, I don't like, I think human nature is very complex. I think we're very adaptable. We've shown that much to be true. Um, and I don't think it necessarily means just because we lived this way for the majority of our history, um, this is how we should live today. At the same time, people who say, oh, it's not natural for people to live in a communal way or it's not natural for people to move around and explore the world. Um, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. And there's a lot of evidence that the competitive, shitty, doggy dog war of all against all way that we've been living for a relatively short period of time is bad for us. And it's causing us a lot of problems. So may, I don't want to make an Evo psych argument like in broad blanket terms but i do think there's plenty of evidence that when we have at least a material impetus and when we have a survival impetus to live in a communalistic way that we can do it so if we can maybe we should ross thanks so much for coming on again we'll have you on another time for sure thanks so much it's great i'm glad to be back for your uh your first time back in a My while. triumphant return from Alpha to Omega and back again. Yeah, man. Thanks again.